One of the key opportunities we see here is that Congress is asking us to rebuild and reimagine America's infrastructure in better ways. It's all surrounded around, I'd say, equity, uh, as well as resiliency, and try to work uh, to make our country better as we look at the issue of climate change as well. Hello, everyone. This is Barbara Hampton, CEO of Siemens USA. And thanks for listening to The Optimistic Outlook. Today, I'm sharing with you a conversation I had with Clarence Anthony. He's the CEO and executive director of the National League of Cities. The National League of Cities, or the NLC, is the largest and oldest organization representing America's cities, towns, and villages, as well as their leaders. And let me share with you why I thought of having Clarence join us to kick off 2023. I've said on previous episodes that the bipartisan infrastructure law takes us from having an infrastructure week into an infrastructure decade. And so if you're wondering what's next for this law, Clarence is a great person to ask because the NLC is right there on the front lines, helping communities to maximize the impact of the law. Clarence and the NLC have been providing valuable technical guidance to mayors, council members, and commissioners. They've been making sure that all cities, large and small, understand what the opportunities are, and they're helping to get them engaged in potential funding opportunities. The NLC has also been forging partnerships among city leaders, the private sector, and nonprofits that will lead to more impactful projects. Now, Clarence and the NLC just started their own podcast called Cities Speak. I encourage you to follow it. And a little bit about Clarence. He became mayor of South Bay, Florida in 1984 when he was just 24. He then served in that role for 24 years until 2008. Now Clarence is entering his 10th year leading NLC's efforts to influence federal policy, strengthen local leadership, and drive innovative solutions. I think you'll really enjoy this conversation, so take a listen. Clarence, it's great to see you again. Welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you very much. What an honor to be able to do this podcast um, as we look toward 2023. So thank you for having me. Yeah, that's going to be a great way to kick this year off. You know, Clarence, one thing that the National League of Cities and Siemens have in common is that we're really both into infrastructure. And I want to dive into some specific policy areas later in the discussion, but let's start a little more with the big picture. We know that mayors and community leaders have been calling to address America's crumbling infrastructure for decades, and you've been right there on the front lines now in your 10th year leading the National League of Cities. What was it like for you to see the bipartisan infrastructure law become a reality? And what did that moment in time represent to you? Well, you know, uh, being in this business uh, for over three decades, it seemed like it was uh, Groundhog Week because we would gather every year for Infrastructure Week. This year is going to be the year that it would pass. And I just recall... Um, you know, always reading ACEC and Infrastructure in America would get a D plus. And as a policy leader, I must tell you, and, and a person who cares, I, I was sort of uh, embarrassed that our country, the greatest nation in the world, would have a D plus when it came to infrastructure. So when it finally happened, I said, oh my gosh, 
uh, this actually happened, and we got a bill that was passed that really was going to transform America's cities, towns, and villages, but state and federal infrastructure as well. And it, I felt as if this was a time for us that we were going to be able to rebuild and revamp our infrastructure and transform the quality of life for residents and people who live in communities all over America. So I look back on it. I think about the day that it was passed, and I can tell you that most municipal leaders celebrated along with Congress and the administration because the $1.2 trillion the infrastructure law brought into our uh, system was just a big step in the right direction, and it touches every type of infrastructure. So uh, in essence, this was a big deal, and it continues to be a big deal, and we're working with our partners, the federal leaders, everyone to make sure that we seize this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity that we have had to be able to make communities better. We are right there with you. What I was probably most pleased to see is that the law itself has an even broader vision than making important investments in roads, bridges, and tunnels, but also investing in areas like electric vehicles and rail and the grid. You know, it really invests in the foundation for the next century of American growth and leadership. What are the key opportunities that stand out to you? You know, there are a number of things uh, that are opportunities. And, you know, first of all, uh, Congress stood up uh, an ambiguous law in a sense because it had goals that really provided some creativity for um, uh, partnerships at every level of government. Uh, and with our industry partners. So, again, this is a great opportunity. And the law moved beyond just the status quo of doing the same type of projects. One of the key opportunities we see here is that Congress is asking us to rebuild and reimagine America's infrastructure in better ways. For example, uh, the use of rail uh, is a good example of a historic first investment in our country's connectivity because yet today cities, towns, and states are reimagining how we can really connect different communities and using the rail system, not just for transportation, but for uh, being able to have job opportunities, being able to travel more effectively and efficiently. Also, I'll say that uh, the law provides for us to be able to work in the electric vehicle charging area and placement uh, as well. And I think that as, as local leaders are looking at this, it's all surrounded around, I'd say, equity uh, as well as resiliency and try to work uh, to make our country better as we look at the issue of climate change as well. So. We're not doing the same thing every day with this type of money and this type of opportunities. And I think that America's cities and, and our infrastructure partners uh, want to make sure that the state, federal, and local leaders are working together to make our system a great transportation system. Yeah, isn't it stunning to think after decades of advocacy from you and others, other colleagues, 
here we are basically overnight entering into what I've heard you call a new five-year race to get federal infrastructure funds out to local communities. Bring us inside what the past year has been like for you and the National League of Cities as you've helped your partners to maximize the impact of the law. I will tell you that it has been um, like being on a train or <laughs> like uh, being on an airplane while it's being uh, constructed because this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for many cities, towns, and villages to take advantage of. The first thing we're doing is that uh, we recognize that small and medium-sized cities can't compete against the big cities as it relates to um, applying for uh, federal dollars. So that's why we uh, stood up um, a local infrastructure hub uh, that is a resource to those small cities. And so the hub as it is, it was really launched with Bloomberg Philanthropies and other partners, will make sure that small and medium-sized cities really have access to federal infrastructure funding so that they can help drive recovery for their communities. And we provided uh, experts, uh, individualized sessions, office hours, peer-to-peer -peer learning sessions, everything that would help any community uh, for the first time in their lives really feel that they can compete and take advantage of all of those dollars uh, that are out there. And so as a part of the hub, we've run boot camps with mayors and municipal staff that last about three to four months uh, on various topics that's going to help them prepare. Um, People ask, what is a small city? What is a medium-sized city? Can I participate? We're targeting uh, those cities that are population 150,000 below um, so that they can help get support in grant writing, um, talk to experts who've gone through the federal process, uh, be able to put together a competitive application. and. We found that cities are hungry for this. We've worked with 180 cities who participated in our first round uh, of boot camps this fall. And the subjects there were on resiliency, energy efficiency, flood mitigation, mobility and transportation. So any city that's interested in going after those grant dollars in these areas we work with them, reminding them that the administration has said that equity is important, uh, sustainability is important. So make sure you're opening a proposal application. Barbara, you know about pr submitting proposals to federal government agencies and local communities. You give them what they ask for <laughs> and get rated for that, right, so that you can win. And we're starting January, our second phase of our boot camp, and we're going to be working in five areas. This is one of the, I think, the new areas that is intriguing to me, and that's the brownfields um, area, brownfields cleanup. Um, there are a lot of communities that were uh, communities that were vibrant years ago with an industry, but that industry left that community, uh, and so we want to help. Uh, what we call those legacy cities to be able to go after money to help them renew their community, revive their community. 
So I think that um, what we're doing is helping cities that traditionally did not have the dollars to hire staff to be able to be competitive. And I'm just excited about it. So we went to work as soon as the bill was passed and said, I am not going to let this opportunity go by. I will not let all the work, uh, Barbara, that we did to get this money um, to not be successful and tell the great stories of what local leaders are doing with this money to change the lives of people. So you can probably tell I'm still pumped up about what we have achieved. I share your view. Let's get to work. I recently had the chance to go visit a customer, and the, the, it turns out the customer had located in a former paper town. So, you know, when digitalization came along, paper factories really slowly and some of them suddenly went out of business. And this town had, it looked like it had been, you know, shut down and shuttered. People had moved away in droves. And the company I was going to go see is actually in vertical farming. And what they were doing is bringing this new form of agriculture to town. The mayor there had invited them in and said, if you would make this your anchor here in, in the Midwest, then you know, we've got all kinds of incentives. We'll even give you office space in City Hall. It's things like that, that kind of partnership that makes it possible for a new high-tech company to come into a town. And then lo and behold, actions like that and, and work with other uh, potential industries has led this town into a revitalization that is so exciting. Repurposing old factories that they used to think were just gonna remain empty. And, and now uh, new shops and services all up and down Main Street. Uh, Clarence, what are you seeing out there? Wow, what a great story. And there are stories around America every day about that same type of visionary leadership by local leaders. And what we see through the ARPA dollars and the infrastructure dollars is a real opportunity to reimagine your community. You and I both know that we are not going back before COVID. We're not going back, you know, like we often say, uh, when we get through this, we'll get back to normal. Well, that story tells us that there's no more normal. You know, with technology, you know, old days, we'd say, let's throw everything on the table. With technology, there's no table anymore. So I see all of these ideas being brought around uh, from local leaders through strategic planning, through community engagement, using infrastructure to be able to hear from their community that they did not do before the pandemic. So what that story really makes me think about is that we are in the business of getting resources, training, technical assistance to all of these cities that need the help. And no matter, I'm hopeful that every one of these cities get money through this competitive grants out there to 400 grant opportunities. But if they do not, they have went through a process that's going to make their community better. We know that we have to get our leaders to plan and to dream and to 
do something different, <laughs> more so than what they have in the past. You know, a perspective that maybe isn't often talked about at the National League of Cities is the idea that the federal investment that's being made, it's huge, but really it's just a down payment. It's actually the private sector that's going to step in and build out the, uh, the, the, the long-term vision of what happens here. So as communities stake their claim with the spending of infrastructure dollars, what they ought to be looking ahead to, and maybe they could use your help on this as well, look ahead to the additional private sector investment that'll round out those dollars and build their future communities. I think that's going to be important. Um, you know, we've often used the, the, the number, whether it's accurate or not, but it's data point. Uh, you know, we put you know, local governments try to put 75% in terms of the dollars out there to make sure that the infrastructure is happening before uh, the um, bipartisan infrastructure law was passed. This allows us to lower the amount of money and use the federal dollars and some of the state dollars, but we will need public-private partnerships in order to achieve some of uh, the goals. You know, when cities are making these investments in public infrastructure and when they're partnering with the private sector to build out the things they need in the future, what it does is it sends a signal to the private sector that this is a great place to invest. I mean, just look at the semiconductor industry, a $52 billion CHIPS Act investment in semiconductors has led to hundreds of billions of dollars of private sector investment, and that's just the start because we're only beginning to see the supply chains build out. So what I'm hoping is that folks are in, at the city level are seeing all of these as a way to, again, lay that foundation for the future that the private sector, private enterprise in the US can go build on and truly revitalize cities all across this country. I'll go back on my days as a, a elected official and someone who worked for a national engineering firm uh, as their government relations person, um, you know, there's always targets, and there are 400 grant opportunities out there over the next 24 months that will come up and be available. Uh, the first thing we need, we need partners. I have always, and when I was working for the engineering firm, as well as adding this job that I have, Good public policy and good proposals always include the public and private sector building the plan together, developing the proposal together. I'll say this, uh, uh, I've found that the best partnerships are those that go in as equal partners and they are perceived as equal partners and that the, the workforce and the local commitment to job creation, revitalization of the communities, um, partner with small and minority-owned businesses, uh, foundation investments uh, in the community, because most leaders want to say that I've transformed the community and the, the corporate partner has also been a part of that transformation by reinvesting in the community. So that is, to me, uh, the key uh, to having a successful partnership. 
It, that's a great point, Clarence. And and by the way, we and others, uh, you know, our, our colleagues in this industry are, are really doing just that, uh, looking to find ways to easily package up technical solutions, educate stakeholders about the value they can bring, and then uh, helping communities all across the country get to work, uh, putting these things into action. I, I'd love to to dive a little bit into one topic area, you just mentioned it, electric vehicle charging. I mean, this is probably one of the most impressive things that's come out of the bipartisan infrastructure law. The idea that we can bring electric vehicles to the tipping point faster if we can quickly build out a national network of charging stations. We at Siemens have made the commitment to manufacture more than a million EV chargers in the US in a four year period. And we just recently announced we're locating one of our manufacturing operations in Carrollton, Texas. What are you hearing from local communities about using these funds to build out their own EV charging infrastructure? Well, first of all, uh, thank you for locating in one of our member cities of the National League of Cities. We appreciate that. And I'm sure that Carrollton is excited to have you guys located there. Um, you know, cities... Uh, as uh, as a government level has always been on the forefront of change and adopting new ideas. And we've been some of the early adopters of electric vehicles as well as light um, electric options like e-bikes, scooters, and autonomous delivery vehicles. Many communities we work with are also learning more about what electrifying their fleets can mean, not just for the municipality, uh, but for the buses and waste haulers and street sweepers and the, the, the climate impact that it can minimize as well. Um, we see many communities have vehicle, uh, electric vehicle infrastructure plans in the work, such as our second vice president of National League of Cities, uh, Mayor Sharon Western Broom of Baton Rouge, Louisiana, They've developed a plan already, along with Orlando, Florida, where the cities are working to find a balance of locations for EV infrastructure and build out charging networks. I think one of the things that is key and leaders are thinking through is zoning and permitting uh, is one of the key ways that cities can, I think, prepare to bring in new electric vehicles and, and fueling options. Um, but we have to work in terms of integrating what I'll call the grid, uh, the systems, and make sure they work in coordination with each other uh, because one can't get in front of the other. And, I, and I've seen even locally in the D.C. area where the whole concept of people buying uh, a charging station and they're putting it right in their front yard, allowing their neighbors to use uh, their parking uh, system there. But we know that we're encouraging all of our cities to develop, um, I would say, um, uh, a NEVI plan, uh, an electric vehicle plan that would get in front of this trend. And we see it happening, and we're excited to be able to work with our partners. And the federal government will be uh, continuing to provide resources and uh, we want to partner with uh, them as well. 
Yeah, I, I, this is such a fascinating topic because we all recognize we won't be able to um, charge. Think about all the vehicles that are in Washington, D.C. If we instantaneously switched all of those to electric from gas powered, you know, overnight, uh, the, uh, the extra electrical load would be outrageous. And so it, we've been developing uh, microgrid software that helps utilities to manage the, the I'll just call it the grid edge. And, and having this kind of technology available to us is going to be an important part of the transformation. I love the idea that it's actually introducing opportunities for new business models. You know, that home entrepreneur who says, come on over, plug in. I've got a deal for you. Um, but, but there's a lot of coordination that really needs to happen here across local, regional, even state lines to prepare our infrastructure to support the, the sustainability goals that all of this is tied to. And, and I really want to get your input on how can technology providers be an asset to communities as they're going through this planning for their own electrical infrastructure. Yeah, I think that cities uh, have been concerned that the layers of infrastructure uh, we don't see every day are our weakest link. But as communities prepare for America for a climate-ready future, they know that modernizing our, I'd say our electricity grid is a critical, important piece to make that happen. I think one of the ways we see local governments leading on grid modernization and growing the reliability, re resilience, and security of electricity is through uh, microgrid uh, policies and, and projects. These projects can and should be done in partnership, I think, with technology providers, um, along with other critical partners, including um, our community leaders and community utilities. You know, Clarence, there's a topic you've brought up a couple of times already in our conversation, equity. And I'll tell you that at Siemens, amidst all the change and disruption we've experienced since 2020, we've chosen to really take a deep look and try to flex every muscle we have to accelerate diversity, equity, and inclusion. And at the Siemens Foundation, which I chair, we're focused on narrowing the opportunity gap for young people in the United States. And we were so proud to partner with you on the pilot program for Youth Excel. And it's assisting six cities in creating equitable career outcomes for marginalized youth and young adults and connecting them with valuable STEM pathways. Uh, we can put more information about Youth Excel in our show notes, but I'd love to hear an update from you about how the partnership is going. Well, thank you so much, first of all, for the commitment uh, to diversity, equity, and inclusion, as well as partnering throughout America with local governments uh, to make communities better through your foundation investments, but also uh, through the work that you're doing um, with small and minority-owned businesses, um, you know, maintaining that connection to the local community by hiring uh, local uh, folks as well. I think uh, as we look at this whole um, uh, commitment model to equity and inclusion, I'll say that uh, the Biden administration has had this as an important element uh, and part of the, um, the, the infrastructure bill. And when we had a chance to develop this Youth Excel uh, program, 
Uh, the goal was to support cities' efforts to improve outcomes for young people who have historically been marginalized from economic opportunities and economic mobility. And, you know, COVID sort of was in our face and showed us all the gaps that existed in America around education, uh, around training, around affordability of housing. And we also recognize that nearly 95% of all new jobs have gone to workers that had, um, I'd say, some college education. And so when NLC started thinking about this, we felt that there was a disconnection uh, between the types of jobs, uh, the workforce, the schools, uh, the structural barriers that many of these youth were, are facing in terms of jobs because with technology and science, the skill gaps were there. So we thought this was a just a unique opportunity to partner with the Siemens Foundation to launch NLC's um, Youth Excel City cohort in January with the six cities, uh, Bridgeport, Connecticut, Houston, Texas, uh, Lauder Hill, Florida, Madison, Wisconsin, Sacramento, California, and St. Paul, Minnesota. So if anybody's listening, go to your city hall, ask them about this program, and talk to the youth because we want to expand this because we know that this is an incredible opportunity to really make a connection to the youth in the communities so that they can, they can um, not only get educated there, but they can also come back and have a place that they can have a job. And I want to thank the foundation for um, believing in NLC and believing in our partnership. And I, I met David, and he is just over the moon just excited about um, what this STEM program is going to do to increase um, uh, disadvantaged populations to get in areas that they have not been historically involved in. David Esweiler, the CEO of the Siemens Foundation, and we are all proud of the work he's been doing. Well, I'll tell you, this is the perfect segue to my last question for you. You know, Clarence, from implementing the American Rescue Plan to now the bipartisan infrastructure law, you and I both share this view that this moment of intense disruption has, has actually yielded the opportunity to shape a better future. I want to hear, in your words, what does that future look like? What are we building together? And how will the infrastructure projects and investments in people made through efforts like Youth Excel help us to make that future a reality? You know, I said something about this a little earlier, that this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, I think, to really impact the lives of, of communities in America that have historically been left behind. And we oftentimes, even when I was a mayor, um, created projects or developed proposals to, to really go into certain communities. And sometimes the most difficult communities were left behind because we couldn't structure um, the bond deal to be able to pay for it. Well, this is the opportunity to use data and develop a plan to really address the most challenging parts of our community. 
the community that don't have broadband for every family, the community that may have a challenge with getting quality water because the pipes were leaking for decades, the communities where the potholes were in the road uh, for weeks and years because we didn't have the dollars to go in and pave that or even put sidewalks, uh, a curb appeal, all of the things that most communities think is normal, let's make every part of the community normal. And let's make sure that people of color, disadvantaged, BIPOC communities, women, small and minority-owned businesses can prosper the same way that everybody else in America. So my dream for these, this, these dollars that are being placed in communities through the ARPA money and the infrastructure bill is that infrastructure is also human infrastructure. Infrastructure is also water, quality water, affordable housing. And the infrastructure bill is this time for us to be able to lift up many boats. And so I think that local leaders are looking at it that way and that connectivity to the lives of families, local businesses, uh, to federal government partnerships, to state partnerships is the way that we're going to get there. And we need our corporate partners like Siemens to give ideas. Don't just uh, go into a community uh, and not uh, work with that community, but work with the, the community itself to get their input as well as we uh, work to transform. So. You, I am I am really still pumped up about what we have achieved as partners, Barbara, and I know it's going to make a difference in the lives of people who live in cities, towns, and villages in our nation. I hope you'll go now to our show notes. You'll find NLC resources available that we touched on during the conversation. You'll find more information about how Siemens is supporting the bipartisan infrastructure law as a technology provider. And you can also learn more about the Youth Excel program we discussed toward the end of the program. Thanks again for listening. And hey, I'd love to hear from you. So send ideas or feedback to optimist.us at siemens.com or reach out on LinkedIn. Talk to you soon. Please follow us on social media and on your favorite podcasting platform. Thank you for tuning in.